Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Faith in management, an all-time low at Starbucks. 41 dead from a mine explosion in Turkey, and the deaths, according to the union, were preventable. Today on the show, the Alliance for American Manufacturing and our independent labor voice, Tom Buffenbarger. Welcome to the Tuesday, October 25th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms, including... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. Scott Paul is going to be our first guest on the show today. He comes to us from the Alliance for American Manufacturing, based in Washington, D.C., been around since uh, 2007. AmericanManufacturing.org is their website, and uh, they are proud sponsors, one of the many proud sponsors of America's Workforce. Scott is going to talk about industrial policy, and he writes that this Congress has done more for American manufacturing than any other than he can remember. And he runs down the list here. The CHIPS Act gave a major booster shot to the semiconductor industry to invite capital investment. The Inflation Reduction Act supplied a clean energy program to incentivize consumer behavior. Last fall's $1.2 trillion infrastructure program, the bipartisan infrastructure law, created a huge demand for manufactured goods from steel and iron to fiber optic cable. All three accomplishments, all of them, are governed by rules and domestic procurement policies like the Build America, Buy America Act, which requires all federal agencies embarking on infrastructure projects to guarantee, guarantee that all the iron, the steel, manufactured products, and construction materials used in the project are produced in the United States. And this, says Scott, will effectively ensure that these investments spur new jobs in America, not overseas. So that's what we're going to delve into, and we're also going to take a look at uh, EV, electric vehicle production. The automakers plan to double spending on EVs by 2030, which is right around the corner. Just got a story out of St. Louis the other day. An international conglomerate with its North American headquarters just south of St. Louis, they're opening a new 400 million-dollar battery plant. (laughs) Not bad, not bad. Uh, By the way, they expect uh, this to be fully operational by 2024, and the company was awarded $197 million through federal infrastructure funding for the site. So more battery production in the middle of America. Now, Not everything is good. We've got some problems with trade adjustment assistance that ran out for reasons that I really don't know. A lot of people are scratching their heads on this one. But this was something in place since 1974. 
and it has prepared American workers for new jobs after they were laid off due to unfair trade. And we saw a lot of bad trade deals since the 70s and 80s and 90s and even in the 2000s. And uh, there's been a number of people speaking out on this. Scott will chime in later in the week. We'll hear from uh, Bill Samuel on this. And lastly, got to put a plug in for the 2022 Made in America Holiday Gift Guide, which I've been talking about on the show for the last couple of weeks. And this is something the Alliance has been doing for a number of years. And if you have a suggestion, I don't know if the deadline has passed already. Because you take a look at today's date, we're, we're two months from Christmas, believe it or not. So if you have a great idea, it may not be too late. Just listen to uh, Scott, and he'll give you the details on that. Tommy Buffenbarger, our independent labor voice, former general president of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, will be joining us later in the show. He's going to give us uh, his perspective on the, uh, the rail issues and this is something we've been addressing on this show for a number of months in fact tom was the first person to call attention to the problems in the rail industry because the machinists are one of the unions that make up the uh, the freight rail industry there's like uh, 12 to 13 unions and some of them have rejected the contract Again, I want to call attention to our show last Thursday with Dennis Pierce of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, and he did a great job explaining what's going on, the issues, the wages, the work rules, and the possibility of a strike that may happen after the election. So we'll talk about that, and also Tom wants to bring up the need for labor strategizing on organizing the emerging technology workforce. Things are changing. Technology is changing. And we got a lot of robotics. What about the people that have to operate those robots? There's a new job classification there. A lot of technology, a lot of changes, and the need to organize. That's what Tom is going to get into. That and more right here on America's Workforce. And now for a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the fine folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. An internal survey at Starbucks shows that white-collar employees' faith in management is at a historic low. Nearly half of the office workers, not the baristas here, the office workers, the managers, assistant managers, filling out this survey said they didn't believe Starbucks behaves, quote, in an ethical and responsible manner. And more than half did not think that the company lives up to its mission and values. And over three quarters, 75% plus, did not believe that Starbucks leaders are making the right decisions for the company. This is pretty interesting, and for very good reason. Starbucks has been the subject of dozens of complaints at the National Labor Relations Board with a recent decision by an administrative law judge finding that the company unlawfully targeted and discriminated against workers for engaging in union activity by telling them they would not get wage increases promised to non-union workers if they unionize. Also, illegally terminating and discharging workers for union activity. 
suggesting to employees that engaging in union activity was not compatible with their continued employment and refusing to accommodate work schedules that they had allowed prior to a union election. One more here, even asking a hotel manager to call police on employees that were congregating in front of the hotel. They thought they were talking about the union, so they called the cops. The death toll from an explosion in a mine, this is in Amsara, Turkey, on October 14th has now reached 41. The president of Turkey, Recep Erdogan, traveled to the scene of the explosion and vowed to end all mining disasters. However, the workers are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. The head of DISK, D-I-S-K, that's a left-wing trade union in Turkey. They said in a statement shared by NPR that they were very sad and angry because the deaths were preventable and the union's safety suggestions were ignored. Even though more inspections were mandated after the country's worst mining disaster in Soma, Turkey, that was back in 2014, the leader of DISC claimed some precautions were ignored for profitability. And he called the explosion on October 14th a massacre. And someone needs to be held accountable. Members of the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers, this would be Local 85, who work at the Corn Nuts plant in Fresno, California, have voted to accept a new collective bargaining agreement. Approval of the contract ends a strike at the Corn Nuts plant. They're owned by Hormel. That strike began on August 15th. Comment here from Anthony Shelton. Anthony is the uh, international president of the Bakers. He said our striking members at the Corn Nuts plant courageously stood their ground and sacrificed so much in order to achieve a fair contract. The union has shown once again that we will do whatever it takes, make any sacrifice, take on any employer or adversary, in order to preserve the rights of our members and maintain a high standard of living for all of our families. That's um, Anthony Shelton speaking on behalf of the Baker's Union. Republic Airways pilots have ratified a new agreement that includes historic increases to compensation and retirement benefits of the pilots represented by Teamsters Local 357, who participated 91.5% voted in favor of the agreement. Captain Josh LeBlanc, who's the executive board president, said the goal of these talks was to secure improvements that would attract new pilots who are beginning their career and retain the experienced pilots, some of the best in the industry, who are already on the property. This new agreement certainly makes Republic Airways an attractive place to begin building skills and experience, and more importantly, the compensation and retirement improvements will encourage many to stay for their entire career. Now listen to some of the details here. Under the new agreement, first officers will see pay increases of 70 to 90%, with first new first officers receiving a 94% increase. 
captains, including senior captains, already near or at the top of the industry, they'll get a 54% increase. The rates are permanent with no provisions, what they call snapback provisions that have been seen at other carriers. In addition to wage increases, the agreement includes a significant improvement to the current retirement program, the existing 401k match program, which matched up to 9% of pilot contributions and was limited by IRS rules, was replaced with a non-elective defined contribution plan, and that plan will deposit up to 12% of the pilot's earnings. Boy, those are really significant wage increases, which kind of tells me they were pretty darn low to begin with. So hats off to uh, Teamster Local 357, who managed that uh, new agreement with Republic Airways. All right, quick break. When we come back, Scott Paul, on behalf of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The The United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the U.S., US, Canada, Canada, and and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers. Standing strong and fighting for what's right. The United Auto Workers are one of the largest and most diverse unions in North America, with members in virtually every sector of the economy. Learn more about this proud sponsor of our program at UAW.org. From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without iron workers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained iron workers and 20,000 apprentices, the Iron Workers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Iron Workers, the sky's the limit. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or do both. Real simple there. AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to a line number one. Welcome one of our regulars, also a proud sponsor of America's Workforce. That would be Mr. Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. AmericanManufacturing.org is their website. I just love saying that because... For too long, we have lost so many jobs overseas, and now those jobs are coming back. Hey, Scott Paul, how are we doing today, brother? Hey, Flash, it is always such a pleasure uh, to speak with you. I know you want to talk about uh, industrial policy in America, and the big question is, can Washington deliver? I mean, we've got some policies in place. Now we got to implement those policies. But first and foremost, um, I see the White House named a new Made in America director. Maybe you can explain what this office is all about. That sounds good, too. We want we want an office 
that says it's made in America. We want to make sure we make things in America and keep making things in America. you got to help me out on this name here, uh, Livia Shemovian. Am I saying that correctly here, Scott? Yeah, Shmovonian, yes. You, uh, you got it. So uh, Livia is a uh, great uh, person and public service. Uh, she worked uh, for Senator Bob Casey doing manufacturing uh, and trade issues, uh, and then within the Biden administration, and she's been elevated to this role of this very important office within the White House uh, called the Made in America office. And this office is responsible for executing the uh, executive orders and the regulations for Build America, Buy America, and another program called Buy American. And in sum, these programs uh, want to ensure that our tax dollars, uh, to the extent the law provides for, uh, and, and it's much more extensive now than it used to be, are spent purchasing made in America materials and products uh, that go into our infrastructure that's federally funded and also uh, into the purchases that the federal government uh, is making. Uh, and the federal government is a major buyer of uh, goods and services in the United States. So it's an important role and one that was first occupied by Celeste Drake, who also uh, was a uh, real advocate on behalf of working people who's been elevated uh, within the Biden administration to another uh, to another labor post. So uh, this is a this is a good welcome development. And we look forward to continuing our work with the administration uh, and with uh, Livia to ensure that we are indeed buying American. Right. Scott, I have to ask you, I know when it comes to government policy, there, there's a tug of war going on because and I want to bring up lowest bidder. How many times you've heard lowest bidder, you got to get the lowest bidder. And sometimes that doesn't always work with products made in America. Uh, are we changing some of those rules around right now to make sure? Because a lot of the products we do get from overseas, they're junk. Let's be honest. They're absolute yeah. junk. So what's the story on that? Yeah, so it's a good question. And for a while now, the law has recognized that there could be a uh, price preference for made in America products. And it depends depended on the agency that was being applied to. But uh, as long as the, the cost was within 10 or 25 um, percent uh, in terms of impacting the overall project cost, uh, there, there was a preference for American-made products. And, and the, 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 the rationale for that is a very simple one. You know, it, and it goes beyond just that, that immediate price for the material or the good. And that's the fact that if you're not buying America there, you may be losing that, uh, that capability down the road. That factory may close. Uh, those workers may move into other uh, professions and they will uh, lose that skill set uh, that was helpful in uh, building America up. Uh, and you'll lose that money from the wages that was recirculated throughout the economy and uh, returned in tax dollars, So, which is something you don't get when you're mm-hmm. purchasing uh, materials and goods from overseas. So uh, so that there is a price preference. Uh, it's acknowledged. Uh, usually uh, it doesn't have to be 
triggered uh, all that much of the time. But the folks who get the most upset about this, other, other than like the philosophical free market people who are just kind of out to lunch on all of this, are the, the, the contractors because they're looking at their margins um, and they love to make a lot of money off of these contracts. Uh, and so uh, even though they lean heavily on American workers for their projects uh, and, and like to have that image, uh, they're the ones who mostly stand in the way of progress on this, uh, even though at the end of the day, I think even they know that uh, it's good for the American economy to be buying those American-made materials and goods to go into federal projects and, and infrastructure. Well, Scott, this administration is definitely going in the right direction, and, and I want to reference your uh, your post here on the Alliance's website, AmericanManufacturing.org, where it's uh, titled, America is Ready for a Complete Industrial Policy Can Washington Deliver? And I read part of it at the beginning of the show and how you pointed out the CHIPS Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Program, which is coming up to a first anniversary here in November as far as the passage in Congress, and then you throw in the Inflation Reduction Act. So pretty much that's a start. Now now talk talk about this. I, I guess we have the foundation, but there's yeah. more to build upon. Can, can you explain what needs to be done from this point on, Scott? Yeah, yeah. And, and when we look back, we're going to look back, I think, on this uh, last two years as being a major step forward for our economic future. It's not reflected at this very moment because obviously there are concerns about prices uh, and inflation and other things that are going on. Uh, but in the, in the longer term, this is going to be a boon for the American economy. And uh, so we do have these, uh, th- this uh, investment in semiconductors that's been made, this investment in clean energy that's been made, this investment in infrastructure. Uh, that's been made, the Buy America rules that we just talked about. Uh, And there's a few more things that we need to do, uh, because as I think you and I know, Flash, uh, semiconductors are not the only uh, type of product where there are a lot of imports and there's not a lot of domestic production. And so we are, in effect, held hostage to the global supply chain and disruptions. And, and, you know, we know because the Biden administration has identified through 1,300 pages of review, of supply chain review, the other types of products uh, that we need to be concerned about, uh, like pharmaceuticals and personal protective equipment to deal with pandemics or other parts of the microelectronic supply chain uh, that are, again, 90, 95% overseas at this point in time. So there is more work to be done to invest in those sectors. And then we also need to make sure, uh, because this has been an ongoing concern for decades, that we have that level playing field on trade. And that means the application of tariffs when we must, uh, and, and certainly the negotiation of trade deals that are fair American workers, uh, and also other rules that we can put into place to help prevent 
the flight of jobs, capital, and factories overseas, either because of tax policies uh, or a light regulation on big companies. Uh, so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. But for the first time in a very, very long time, we have a good foundation for progress, and we've reversed some of those policies that led to so much offshoring and so many plant closures uh, over the last couple of decades. And it's not like some of those won't happen. There still will be a lot of churn in the manufacturing sector. There always is. But there should be much more of a two-way street now, and we should see much more investment uh, pouring into the United States to build new factories in semiconductors, in clean energy, and in other uh, areas of the economy as well. Scott, let me ask you, and I brought this up in various conversations on this show, policies take time. Uh, let's be honest here. I mean, we were talking yesterday with Greg Regan in the Transportation Trades Department about the bipartisan infrastructure deal. And that, out, out of the policies we just talked about here, that's the only one that got uh, bipartisan help on. Uh, we, we've got to do a better job of working with both parties on these issues because we need to move America forward. We, we need to bring those jobs back. And I don't care who's in office or what the Congress looks like. We, we have to make that point very, very clear. But these policies, I guess they'll take some degree of time before voters realize, hey, you know what? I guess this administration is doing the right thing. In your estimation, what what would be that time? When will we see some of this? Because I know the the infrastructure. I guess some states are seeing some of the money right now, but it's still yeah, it's still maybe a ways off. What's what's your take on that? Yeah, everybody's looking for what, what have you done for me today? Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and this is about this is about the future, but this is going to mean better wages, better jobs, uh, lower prices. Uh, flash lower prices for Americans, because we'll be making our economy more self-reliant and also uh, more uh, efficient and competitive because of these infrastructure investments. And you're right. Some of that money is just going out the door. So there are projects right now uh, where there are shovels in the ground uh, for for infrastructure. Uh, There are projects right now that are building out a national network of electric vehicle chargers, particularly, you know, along interstate highways in the sparsely populated parts where I think the the range is more of a concern for those electric vehicles. You're seeing a lot of factory uh, opening or or, or groundbreaking announcements in semiconductors, in batteries, in electric vehicles, in other, uh, in solar and if you if you put up a map with a bunch of pins on it, um, it is packed with them. And so someday that will be news, right? I mean, because it is a it is a rebirth of all this stuff, and 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 most people won't have to go very far to see the fruits of this policy. Uh, whether it's like a solar panel manufacturer in Georgia or a semiconductor manufacturer in Ohio. Uh, I mean, they're going to be all over the map. And so it's coming online soon. It's obviously not something that's happening in the next couple of weeks, uh, but we'll see more and more of this popping up uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, And, you know, the, the problem is, and Flash, this is, I think, my concern, is that this isn't like breaking news or sexy news or controversial. Everybody likes plan openings. Uh, right. So this, this isn't the stuff that gets the salacious headlines, which is unfortunate because it is, 
It's how people get jobs, and it's how communities uh, become more sustainable. And, uh, you know, and I guess that might be boring stuff to some people, but, but that's what is going to build a better future for, uh, for our workers uh, and for our communities uh, and also for our environment uh, as we're moving ahead. And the corporations, especially the automakers, I mean, they see what's happening. And I saw the story that they plan to double spending on EV production to a $1.2 trillion, not billion, trillion dollars by yeah. 2030. I mean, that's, that's eight years away. So, again, yeah. policies take time. Corporations are liking what's coming out of Washington right now, but it's, it ain't happening today. All right, Scott Paul joining us on our live line on behalf of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Again, do check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. We're going to talk about China's military, what they're doing using our technology to develop its hypersonic missile program. That's a problem. Also, our independent labor voice, Tom Buffenbarger, will be joining us later in the show, back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. The United Steelworkers of America represent over 70,000 workers in the state of Ohio. Steelworker members enjoy the benefits of some of the best contracts of any workers in the world. Many of your friends, neighbors, and relatives are members of one of the most effective Democratic unions in our country. With the pressures unorganized workers are under in today's economy, you need to join them. So call the Steelworkers Organizing Office at 216-292-5683 or toll-free at 1-800-443-3752. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always like those five-star ratings, and we're seeing more and more of them. So thank you very much. Let's go back to our live line. Rejoin Scott Paul. Scott is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Again, the website, AmericanManufacturing.org. All right, Scott. I know China (laughs) is a problem. I did not know that their military is using our technology to develop its hypersonic missile program. Scott, this is pretty scary stuff. Can you give us some details on this? Yeah, I would, this, is, this was first reported uh, in the Washington Post through a good uh, investigative report by um, 
uh, Ellen Nakashima and Kate Cadell, and they were able to track down um, uh, software and other types of technologies that U.S. companies sold to commercial entities in China, uh, and those commercial entities in China have a close relationship with China's military. And the technology then ended up helping to speed along China's hypersonic missile program. What are hypersonic missiles? Well, they are scary, I will say. These are missiles that go faster than the speed of sound. Uh, they're harder for missile defenses to, uh, to disable um, and to develop they require an extraordinary amount of technology just because of the physics involved with this. And so these, uh, these highly sophisticated uh, simulations through software are necessary. And China simply did not possess uh, that kind of uh, coding or engineering capability. Uh, U.S. firms did. And, uh, and so this technology ended up in the hands of China's military. And there are laws designed to um, prevent this. Uh, the problem is that these sales are so lucrative that a lot of companies like put blinders on, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because there are export controls, there are prohibitions against selling directly to the Chinese military or to selling anything to China anywhere that has anything to do with missiles. Uh, and so obviously, you know, if, if you, if you were thinking about this, uh, you know, and you were in this industry, you, you could you could safely assume that some of this is, is probably going to end up in a military application. Um, and so it's tragic for a couple of those reasons, uh, but it, it shows, I, I think, in part the wisdom of the Biden administration clamping down on some of these technology exports to China, because by the way, this has happened years ago. This just didn't happen over the last couple of months. Uh, but within the last, uh, you know, couple of weeks, the Biden administration has, has has basically said, particularly for sophisticated types of technology involved in some types of uh, semiconductors, that U.S. companies or U.S. citizens can't be involved in any way, shape, or form. Uh, of that for, for China. And so it is, it is essentially frozen China's sophisticated capabilities in semiconductors, but we still have this, you know, hypersonic missile uh, development out there. But that, you know, the, the um, what, what do you say, the, 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 the horses are already, are already out of the barn on that, on that one. So there's no putting them back in, but we can, we can hopefully learn from this uh, as, as we move ahead. But this is like, this is, this is about greed. This is about not enforcing the law uh, as much as it should. But it's also about China's intentions uh, and capabilities where they didn't have a, a domestic ability to build up this technology. So uh, they acquired it uh, from U.S. sources. Uh, and just a reminder that, you know, even if there's uh, commercial activity in China, uh, Flash, that the, the heavy hand of the Chinese Communist Party uh, as well as the Chinese military are, are, are probably going to be connected to it uh, yeah. in, in some way uh, at the end of the day. Scott, I can't tell you so many times on this show, I have said that we have created our enemy in China, especially when you go back to uh, 2001 
when we normalize relations with them because they were not the country they are today. And primarily it's because of opening the doors to trade and more trade, and then you throw in greed and more trade, and look what they've become. It's, it's really sad. It's really sad. But again, you got to take a look at the people that we elect yeah. and and actually what side they're on, what side they're on. I think more people get it today, but I'll tell you, we got a lot. We got a lot to correct here in in the in the months and years ahead. Okay, let's uh, let's end on a positive thing. I love this uh, thing that you've been doing for a number of years, and that's the Made in America Holiday Gift Guide, the 2022 Made in America Holiday Gift Guide. We've been hitting it on the show here, and hopefully, you got a couple of ideas here from our listeners. And we've been promoting the email. I take it the time the the door has closed for suggestions on this. Where do we stand? Yeah, the the Alliance for American Manufacturing Elves are busy curating the list right now. We've gotten a <laughs> lot of suggestions from uh, from across the uh, the country, and and the way this works is that we'll curate a uh, a couple of you know one or more gift ideas that are made in every state in the nation, every single state in the nation, and so this runs the gamut from uh, you know fishing tackle to, uh, to to pet supplies to to to, 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 to clothing. You know, there's lots of stuff in here, and the the, the guide this year should launch uh, on or around uh, November the 17th. Uh, be on the lookout for it. And the awesome thing. Uh, about about the gifts uh, in this. And by the way, we don't get any money from this. This is a free public service that we're giving both to the public uh, and to these companies just to try to be a matchmaker, uh, is that you know everyone's always surprised when they get a Made in America gift because it's, yeah. it's, it's delightful, it's unexpected, it's meaningful in some way. And, you know, you're not going to get hit with those overseas supply chain disruptions if you're buying American <laughs> Right. So you're you're going to get your gift, and it's going to be a quality gift, uh, and it's going to have a whole lot of meaning uh, for both the 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 receiver, uh, the recipient, uh, as well as the sender. I remember last year there were a lot of gifts sitting on a dock in Long Beach, Los Angeles, because yeah. so yeah, that's so right. many. Yeah, I think like forty percent of the goods come from China. Yeah, made in America. We'll look forward to that again. That'll be uh, November seventeenth. And you can count on us here at America's Workforce to promote the heck out of that. So, Scott, I'm going to leave it on that note. I thank you for your sponsorship. Keep up the great work over there at the Alliance, okay? Flash, thank you so much for having me on. And it's always such a great pleasure uh, to uh, have a conversation. AmericanManufacturing.org is the website. We're going to take a quick break. Tom Buffenbarger, our independent labor voice, coming up next. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. 
Hello from the Communication Workers of America, District 4. We are a labor union representing a vast array of workers in different industries, including the Association of Flight Attendants, Telecommunications, CWA Passenger Services, Public Health Care, and Education Workers, the IUE, CWA Industrial Division, the National Association of Broadcast Employees, the CWA News Guild, not to mention our growing digital sector, and many others. If you're interested in organizing your work group or learning more about what it means to be CWA strong, visit our website at www.cwad4.org. That's cwad4.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. Let's go to uh, line number two. Welcome our independent labor voice right now. That would be Tommy Buffenbarger, retired general president of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. And Tommy, got some news from uh, one of your union brothers. This would be at uh, local 1529. That's District 15. There was a strike that began on October 15th that ended now for the approximately 700 members of that local who work for Amphenol Aerospace in Sydney, New York. Apparently, the new contract includes improved wages, elimination of the two-tier wage system, and improved paid leave. Norman Shreve is the business rep at District 15. He said our members stood strong to secure a contract that created fairness in the workplace and improve their quality of life. So I can only assume that you must know Mr. Shree for, for some time. It sounds like he worked out a pretty good deal. What do you think? He he did. I've known Norm for quite a while, a number of years, and he's a good – matter of fact, he's a great rep. And that's a tough company. And um, it's kind of uh, emblematic of what's happening today with some of these companies who want to take still – want to take advantage of their workers and make them pay the price for doing business while they're reaping tremendous profits. And it's not just with Amphenol, it's with every other big company out there, uh, whether it's airlines, railroads, industrial shops, they're, they're making money. When you hear that the economy is suffering or things are going downhill, not really true, Flesh. Uh, profits. Just look at the Wall Street Journal a day or two, and you'll see these companies are still turning out tremendous profits. But they want the workers to bear the brunt of way of uh, cost cuts to make even more profits. They don't yeah. want to share the wealth the workers are creating. So what Norman did with Amphenol is uh, to be uh, applauded and uh, a shout out to him. Great job, Norm. And I'll tell you, what's really important is the elimination of that two-tier wage system. I I know that's gone into effect with a number of unions. UAW has been uh, struggling with that over the years. 
and it just pits one worker against another worker, which is what a company likes too. When you yeah, think exactly. About that. Tom, you, you talked about profits, and, and you did mention the rail industry briefly. Let's zero in on that, and I thank you for calling our attention to the situation some months ago. And, uh, yeah, the rail, the people that run the rails, including, what, uh, Warren Buffett, they're making a whole lot of money. They cut the workforce by 45,000. 45,000 left the workforce. This was primarily during the pandemic. They only hired about 10% of the workers back uh, we, uh, we've been promoting the fact that we had Dennis Pierce on the show. This was last Thursday. I'd like to get your perspective because I guess, uh, well, at least one or two unions, they're not too happy with it that they voted it down, but we've got like, uh, 13 unions involved in the whole situation. What, uh, what do you think, what do you think is going to happen here? Uh, you know, Flash, I, the more I've been, uh, studying this and talking with my, uh, buddies in the rail industry, the issue still remains the uh, very, very, uh, uh, it's indescribable, attendance policy, the absentee policy that railroad workers face if they need to take time off for their maintenance of their own health care or the health of their spouse or children or parents, they can't get time off without being penalized for it. Now, let's go back and think about this. During the early days of the pandemic, right away, the railroads requested the president name all the railroad workers as essential personnel, meaning they all got a letter from the government, like a a get-out-of-jail-free card or something. If during the days of lockdown and restricted travel, if a railroad worker was out and on his way to his job uh, and he was stopped or detained for some reason, that letter got them off. But they had to show up for work. They had to keep the freight running. They had to keep products coming to grocery stores, to gas stations, to hardware shops, uh, building supplies. The list goes on. They had to work. The railroads got their wish. They made that rule declaring them all essential personnel. But they wouldn't provide the railroad workers with masks, gloves, any of the protective equipment that people needed who had to come to work and do their job. So if a worker did get sick, if he got COVID, if he got the flu, whatever, they were penalized to the point of discharge for missing any work. And then the railroads came out with an even more onerous absentee policy that makes it virtually impossible for railroad workers to get any time off just to take care of themselves without being penalized. Now, remember, the boss doesn't doesn't fall under this category, just unionized railroad workers. And so they're rebelling against this, and I, I agree with them. This is wrong. There's got to be something done, and the contract negotiations is the place to do it. The only other solution would be, and this conversation seems to be growing, is... If Congress can make a rule 
at the request of railroad owners to declare all their employees essential, then we want to see a rule made or legislation passed called something like the Railroad uh, Health Protection Act, which will protect a railroad worker, keep him from being penalized if he takes a sick day, if he's got to go to the hospital and have an operation. Those things you're penalized for. You're Mm -hmm. penalized today for taking care of your own health or the health of your family. And so maybe it's time we do something for health care for railroad workers to protect them. And uh, if it only takes the Secretary of Labor issuing a rule like they did for essential personnel, then we want to see a rule uh, for railroad workers protecting their health. And this would actually transcend a contract and maybe uh, wake up the railroads uh, and treat their workers with a little bit of decency. They're overworking the workers. You're right. They've laid off so many, and they expect those that remain to pick up the slack, but don't give them any consideration for them taking a day off or taking care of their health, even to have a physical. Tom, I'm so glad you brought that up because Dennis said, Dennis Pierce in that interview last Thursday said there was a one worker that refused to get a medical checkup because he was scared to take the time off. That person died of a heart attack weeks later. So the policy right now ain't working. It's killing people. Something's got to be done right away on that. And, and Flash, it's not like the railroads are suffering. They are making right now billions in profit. Profit. And they can't share that with their workers or cover the cost of helping the worker maintain his health. Something's wrong in this picture. And we need to reestablish a, a sense of balance and fairness inside the rail industry again. So... The rail workers have a a big challenge. Uh, They're making the fight. Um, I support rail workers. And uh, I just hope that there is some common ground that can be reached. Otherwise, we're in for a real rodeo. Boy, you're not kidding. I know you want to talk about uh, the emerging technology workforce and organizing that workforce. I, I mean, this could be a really, really in-depth conversation, but maybe you can give us a couple of ideas because uh, things are changing. Technology has changed everything. We're seeing a lot of robotics. We're seeing jobs disappear because of automation. So those that are involved in this transition, they have to organize. What's your What's your thoughts on that? Uh, My thoughts are this, Flash. I'm involved in a project with um, some high-tech company folks uh, and with a a university that are looking at ways to open doors for second- and third-tier engineering schools to get their graduates into the tech industry. Right now, the big tech industry, the Googles, the Apples, the whoever, the Microsofts out there, all of these big companies rely on principally just four schools for all their new engineering employees. 
And what they've learned is they all have homogenized their approach to technology that it's starting to show up in stifled innovation. But we know there's a lot of other great engineering schools. And so the project we have is trying to create a program like an internship apprenticeship for these folks to get into the big tech companies. And in this project, we've come to realize that the speed at which it's evolving and the type of things and products that are on the horizon are going to create a, a great manufacturing opportunity as the U.S. starts to build stuff in this country again. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be new stuff. And what's lacking um, on behalf of the labor movement is what are we doing? What are we doing to recognize it, identify it, make a plan because even the unions representing these workers will be a little different. The expectation of the membership will be a little different from the traditional unions we know today. What are, what's the labor movement doing to pull together its best and brightest and figure out this is what we see the future looking like and this is how we have to prepare to organize it because these new workers flash are not opposed to a union there's nope. you're seeing that i'm seeing that when places like apple stores and starbucks and amazon workers all see the value of a union and you go out and ask these potentially new high-tech workers what do they think about unions it's generally positive but we're not doing anything in a concerted way, in a thoughtful way, to prepare for this. I like and, the idea. Yeah. And I like so it. what we need is somebody to call together one of these grand, uh, you know, uh, congresses or something. And uh, the subject is simple. It's got a specific purpose. How do we prepare to organize the workforce of the future and learn about and uh, educate people about what the new things are that are coming at us. Some of it's pretty amazing. Tom, good conversation. I'm glad you brought that up, and it certainly warrants further discussion. Tom Buffenberger, our independent labor voice and former general president of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. That's it for another show. Coming up tomorrow, Heat and Frost Insulators and the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Until then, all of you, have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.